knows about uh, Albert Einstein. He was known for his brilliant mind. Upon death, scientists even removed his brain so that it could be further studied, that they might figure out why. <laughs> why was this guy so intelligent? Why was he so smart? But unfortunately, even, even though Einstein was brilliant, he was very, very terribly wrong about a few things. One of those being the Bible. An interesting artifact my family has kept is a letter that actually Einstein wrote to my great-great-grandfather. My great-great-grandfather was just a farmer in Saskatchewan, E.P. St. John, but he wrote a letter to Albert Einstein. He lived at the same time, and surprisingly, he got back to him. And the subject of his letter was about the Bible. My great-great-grandfather had become an atheist towards the end of life, rejected the truth of the Bible. And so he asked this smartest man on the planet, what is your opinion about the Bible? And so he wrote back and he said this, Dear Sir, I agree with every word you have said in your letter of February 26. The Bible is, of course, written by men. And there's no reason to believe everything told in it. Even so, it is an interesting monument of past times. The contents seem to me in part beautiful, in part wicked. To take it as eternal truth seems to be also superstition, which would have vanished long ago, would its conservation not be in the interest of the privileged classes. My consolation is this. It is impossible to abolish superstitions by fighting against it. If you succeed in overcoming one, others will grow in its place. Only the slow process of enlightenment and education can bring about inner freedom of man. Sincerely yours, Professor Albert Einstein. Well, it's amazing how someone so brilliant could be so wrong about the most important things. When someone is truly enlightened by the Holy Spirit, they will recognize that all of Scripture is not simply written by men, but divinely inspired, infallible, and inerrant, and worthy of our complete trust. And it is actually Scripture that has over and over again released people from vain superstitions. Even as we celebrate the Protestant Reformation, it was Scripture that brought people out of the superstition of the Roman Catholic Church as Martin Luther went back to the Bible and he saw its infallible truth and he began to proclaim it again freely even to the common people and they were released from bondage 2,500 years before Martin Luther's time David penned a wonderful psalm by God's inspiration which attests also to the marvelous perfection and powerful effects of Scripture. This is what I want to focus on this morning. So we turn to Psalm 19. There's much that could be said about this psalm. This has long been one of my favorite pieces of Scripture. It gives us a clear and profound look into the matter of Revelation. Charles Spurgeon put it well. He noted how this psalm talks about two books, the world book and the word book, general revelation 
and special revelation. It begins speaking about how the, the skies above, the heavens are declaring, they're speaking to us. And then moves on to how the scriptures speak to us as well. There are really three parts to this psalm. Verses 1 to 6, the words of the heavens. Verses 7 to 11, the words of God. And verses 12 to 14, the words of God's servant. So just a brief overview here. First of all, the words of the heavens in verses 1 to 6. The heavens and sky are proclaiming, they're declaring the glory of God and, and his handiwork. That there is a divine creator. We see that clearly displayed in what he has made. And this knowledge, this general revelation goes out to all places. Speaking words, verse 3 mentions, there's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. And so it speaks of general revelation. And as you go on into the second section, verses 7 to 11, speaks of the words of God in different terms, speaking about different aspects of Scripture. The law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, the rules. All different words referring to the Bible, the Scriptures, as we have them. And there are different aspects of Scripture's character revealed here and also its powerful effects, its warnings, its desirability. And then in verses 12 to 14, we have the words of God's servant. After considering God's revelation, David prays to the Lord and it's essentially a, a prayer for cleansing and help against sin so that he might be blameless in light of this perfect word that's been revealed to him and even that the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart would be acceptable in God's sight whom he calls his rock and his redeemer but I want to focus now on the four statements made in verses 7 to 8 which highlight different aspects of scripture's character and power each statement describes an aspect of the word of God and then its nature or character, followed by its effect on us as we submit ourselves to the word of God. So here first we see in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the word of the Lord, the word there used is Torah, which does not simply mean a criminal code. Sometimes in scripture, the word law refers to those commands God has given to us. And if we do not obey them, there's a curse. If we obey them, there's a blessing. In that sense, we could use the term law, but really this word is more all-encompassing than that. It really does not have mainly a negative connotation, but a positive connotation. It refers to instruction. All of God's instruction to his people, as even a father would give instruction to his children. And this is the instruction here of, of Yahweh, the Lord, the eternal God who revealed himself to Moses as a saving God, the God who brings his people up out of Egypt. And so it is guidance 
instruction from the God who redeems and adopts his people. So we know that his instruction also is from the best heart. And it's with our best interests in mind. The law of the Lord. And he says about this law that it's perfect in nature. Its character is utter perfection. In the sense of something whole, complete, and unscathed, and without fault. God's word is perfect. In scripture, God's ways and God's work and God's word are all said to be perfect. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect. 2 Samuel 22.27, this God, his way is perfect. And here, the law of the Lord, God's word, is perfect. And so Spurgeon notes, because scripture is perfect, it's a crime to add to it, it is treason to alter it, and it is felony to take from it. It's whole, it's complete, it's without fault. Theologically, we often speak of the perfection of God's word in terms of its inerrancy. There are no errors in this word. Every word and every part is inerrant. No real contradictions, discrepancies, or historical, scientific, or theological errors. It's unscathed by the errors of man, even though God used men to pen down perfectly what he intended. The scriptures are indeed tried over and over again in the courtroom of man. There are many false witnesses that rise against it, many accusations made against the word of God, but in the end, it will always be vindicated. Its truth stands as perfected forever. For instance, for a long time, scholars criticized the Bible regarding a people group called the Hittites. They didn't think the Hittites actually existed. They thought the Bible made this up. But then they found archaeological evidence for the Hittites. God's word, no matter what attacks come against it, will always be vindicated as perfect truth in the end. And those who don't believe in it, like Albert Einstein or E.P. St. John, were ultimately on the wrong side of history and they have been judged according to the perfect instruction they rejected. What is its effect, this perfect law of the Lord? It says here it revives the soul. And this word, shavav, means something like to turn or to bring back, like God can turn back his anger, bring his people back to their land. It can mean to restore someone from being lost or even stuck in sin or from being depleted, like food that revives the body's strength. God's word revives the soul's strength. It brings back liveliness and vitality, new life to the soul, to the inner man. Older translations even translated this, converting the soul. God's word does have the power to convert. Spurgeon says it is God's word rather than man's comment on God's word, which is made mighty with souls. The spirit of God takes the word of God to make the people of God. And this word reviving 
is even the same word used in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God's word restores our souls. It revives us. It refreshes us. Even in the midst of all the soul's trouble. When our hearts wander from God. When we've been ensnared in sin. When we are depleted and tired and depressed. God's instruction revives, restores, refreshes. And as 2 Corinthians 4.16 notes, our inner self can be renewed day by day, even as the physical self is wasting away. The word of God applied to the soul brings revival. Times of widespread revival in the history of the church were always times when the word of God was unleashed and proclaimed with power. Like a lion, it just needs to be let out of the cage so it can show its power. And times of personal revival also flow from the word of God, read, heard, taught, or proclaimed. It brings us back. It awakens us. It turns us. It brings us to where we need to be. It awakens the sinner to his wickedness and desperate state before a holy God and shows him the way of salvation by God's grace. It leads the sorrowful and tired back to the source of all comfort and joy, God himself and his promises and grace. So the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Second, we see here the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That word testimony refers to a, an eyewitness, right? The word of God is a testimony or witness to the wonderful things God has done and said. Just like your testimony if you're a Christian. It's your eyewitness account of what God did in your life. So scripture is this account, this record of what God has truly done. The prophets and apostles who wrote it saw God act and heard him speak. It is now recorded for us like minutes in a minute book. We don't have to question what, what had been said way back then. We can go back to the word of God. We know exactly what has been said and done. And here David emphasizes that the testimony of the Lord is sure. That is, it's firm, it's trustworthy, it's reliable, it's safe. It is a faithful eyewitness. It is unbiased. We know that all media today has a bias, right? You go to CBC or Global, it's going to be more from the left-leaning position. If you go to National Post or the Toronto Sun, it's going to be more right-leaning there's always some bias that can skew the report of what's, what's actually happened. But that is not the case with Scripture. It says things exactly how they are, just the facts. It does not sugarcoat. It does not flatter. It does not falsify. There's no fake news in the Bible. When Oliver Cromwell, a, a Puritan and politician, was getting a portrait done, he asked the painter, 
to paint him warts and all. And that's actually where we get that phrase, warts and all. And we still have that painting today. Cromwell, sure enough, had some warts on his face. And so we can see what he actually looked like. That's what scripture is like. It, it paints humanity and what happened in history, warts and all. Even its heroes like David are not whitewashed. And those who were trying to be whitewashed are exposed for who they really are. I think this is one great way in which scripture attests to its truth. It does not have an agenda except the perfect agenda of the perfect God. God's movements throughout history are painted exactly how they happen. So we can trust this record we have in the Bible. It is faithful. It is sure. And as such, it makes wise the simple, David says, as a reliable testimony. It gives us faithful teaching. And advice that applies to our lives. By learning from what it records, we become wise. And note here that it makes wise the simple. Proverbs 1 will say even the wise can grow in understanding through the word of God. But Romans 12.16 reminds us not to be wise in our own sight. And indeed, the, the proud and those who are wise and, and intelligent in their own sight cannot receive often the truth of Scripture. God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. He keeps these things from the wise and powerful and grants them to be understood by little children, Jesus says in Matthew 11. Little wonder that Einstein could not understand the truth of God's word. He was too smart in his own estimation. The word simple here has the idea of someone who is young and naive, inexperienced and easily seduced. A person like that needs someone to come along and instruct them. They're a greenhorn. Like if you arrive at a job and you're starting at the bottom of the rungs, right? You're a greenhorn. You need some journeyman to come along and teach you what to do. Or in modern slang, we... We call this a, a noob, right? If you log onto a new video game and you've never played it before, well, you're a noob and you might be embarrassed. You might be destroyed easily because you, you don't know how to play the game. You need to take some tutorials first. Scripture tells us that we are simple like that. And so we need Scripture's wisdom to make us wise. Scripture makes us wise about life. It gives us much practical advice. It tells us how to act and what to do in practically any given situation. We know that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads to death. Our own wisdom often gets us nowhere fast. And there are all kinds of philosophies and worldly wisdom, apparently wise teachings, but they ultimately lead us astray. Like in Pilgrim's Progress, Mr. Worldly Wise Man comes along and he tries to get Pilgrim to go off of the narrow road. We need God's word to come alongside us and keep us on the right way. It will make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. As 2 Timothy 3.15 says, before we come to Christ, we are lost and ignorant 
about the way of salvation. We're, we're in darkness. We're simple in that regard. We need the faithful testimony of the gospel to come alongside us and show us, look, sinner, here, here's the way to be saved. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not by your own works. Come and believe in him. Turn from your sin. Repent and trust in Christ and you will be saved. And when we are full of scripture, we are indeed wise. Our vision is corrected by the lens of the word so we can see the world around us clearly. Psalm 119, 97 to 104 notes this wizening effect of the word. It says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Through the word of God, we can be wiser than our enemies, wiser than our teachers, wiser even than the aged. Indeed, I would add wiser than Einstein himself. This is the word of God that makes us wise, though we're simple. Third, we see here, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That word precepts has the idea of God's precise procedures. You might think of a, a sentry who's stationed somewhere to watch over an area. He has that area designated to him. He has certain protocols for certain situations. The scripture is like that. It gives us precise detail and protocol for how to live. And these precepts of God are right. They are upright. They are proper. They are just. That word has the idea of straight or smooth, level or correct. Like when you pour concrete and you smooth it out so it acts as a correct foundation for the rest of the house to be built on. If God's procedures were anything but exactly right, they could not guide us. They would ultimately lead us astray into ditches of despair and sadness. But God's procedures are always the right thing for the right time. And so they lead to good effects, which David says gladdens the heart. He says rejoicing or gladdening the heart. When unrighteous rules are given, say, in a country, it brings sadness and madness. It makes people break out in riots, perhaps. But God's rules, God's precepts are right. They're just. And so they bring happiness. They bring rejoicing. They bring gladness. In a world that's full of corruption and violence, it is so refreshing, so comforting, so gladdening to come back to the Word of God where we see everything here is right. Everything here is correct and just, and it's a faithful guide for us. We have enemies like the world, the flesh, and the devil, 
trying to give us protocols and procedures that promise momentary fulfillment, but really just fill our lives with more sadness and disorder. Our flesh will cry out, hit him back when he hits you. Lash out with your words. Go after this and that craving. But we know that path is not the way to be full of joy. Rather, it makes us sad and it makes others sad. And if you follow that way too long, you become hollow, void of any real lasting joy. But God's word says to us things like, forgive others, be humble, watch your tongue, come to me as the the fountain of living water, be satisfied in me. And when we walk in that way, we know it to be better than all of those false ways. David then could even say in the midst of terrible suffering, in Psalm 4, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. We can rejoice even in suffering, knowing what we know from the word of God. And Jesus says in John 15, 10 to 11, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This word of God, God's righteous precepts are ultimately the fountain of true spiritual joy. Fourth, we see here, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The commandments of the Lord, there are commands in scripture, commissions, charges, like you would receive from a king, a parent, or a boss. There's an authority here in the word of God that must not be lost. When we come to the word of God, we know this is the king of kings speaking to us, so We ought to listen up and to obey even as we hear the commandment of the Lord. And it's pure, which word can refer to something that is physically cleaned out and empty, like a room when you move out. But the idea here is that it's cleared of all impurities. They've all been cleaned out, as it were, from the word of God. Really not cleaned out because there were no impurities to begin with. But we as people don't often understand that kind of purity because our own hearts are impure. Our own houses get dirty. We need to clean them out. God's word is pure like silver and gold refined seven times over. It is completely clear. God's words unlike the words of men, are pure because they flow from a pure spring, the pure and holy God, whose motives and thoughts and desires are always good. They're free from all moral and mental imperfections. The words of men are often corrupted by evil motives, selfish desires, and twisted thoughts, but God's words are completely purified. And as such, they enlighten the eyes. This phrase can mean two different things here. It can mean something like to brighten someone's day, to enlighten someone's eyes, is to give them something to be glad about, even in a difficult and 
dark situation. It's used that way in Scripture in the Old Testament. Like if I pick some wildflowers from Janelle's garden and I, I give her some flowers, then it brightens her day. It, 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 it brightens her eyes. It, it, it enlightens her day. It makes her day. So God's word can brighten our situation with its pure commands. But this word can also mean something like we use the term enlightenment. There is that period of history that people refer to as the enlightenment, the age of reason, where people shook off the, the shackles of, of tradition and the authority of the church and whatnot and entered into this brighter day where science and intellectualism and materialism was exalted. That kind of enlightenment is referring to an intellectual shining of light, illumination. And unfortunately, we see that really the long-term effects of the enlightenment and all of those philosophies is really nothing but confusion and darkness. When you pursue human reason, which is so fallible and corrupt, and pursue even science apart from God's truth and authority, it really produces darkness. What Einstein called enlightenment is really a blackening in the long run. Because the word of God is what truly and ultimately brings light into our minds and hearts. Again, Spurgeon says, whether the eye is dim with sorrow or with sin, the scripture is a skillful oculist and makes the eye clear and bright. The word of God brings life into sharper focus as we apply its lenses our life becomes brighter and more beautiful and we gain understanding illumination indeed that is what god does even at our conversion where he shines the light of his glory into our hearts that we might know christ we see his glory and we're changed now we need this reminder about the word of God today, don't we? We need to be reminded of the character and the power of the word of God because sometimes we drift away from the word. We get thinking we can do life on our own. We get out of our Bible reading, our daily Bible reading. We get away from the word of God. Maybe we even grow cold to the word of God. But we need this reminder from the Bible itself about what the Bible does and its perfect character. We are missing out if we're not in the Bible. It draws us back in by showing us just how great a work it can do in our lives. Maybe you say, yes, I've been feeling down. Maybe you've been lost in sin and you need restoration. Well, there's a remedy for that in the word of God. There's reviving for the soul. Maybe you're facing big decisions. You need wisdom. Well, the word has that as well. Maybe you've been a bit gloomy. You need some joy, some gladdening of the heart, some brightening of the eyes. Maybe you 
need the truth of God's word to guide you. This is a call to come back to the word of God when we've strayed from it. David, as a faithful witness, even to the power of the word of God in his life, draws us back that we might come to the word of God and find that it is sufficient for all our needs. And I know sometimes it's hard to get in the word consistently, isn't it? We all, most of us, are in a certain demographic in our church where we have young children or maybe have older children. And it just seems like there's no time in the day to get back to the word of God. But we can all find some time. It's, it's just how we decide to use it. And this encourages us to come back to the word. Next time you sit down after putting the kids down for a nap, maybe instead of flipping open YouTube and watching that next video, why don't you open up your, your Bible app? Are you going to find something more satisfying in a YouTube video than the, the word of the living and true God who is the fountain of living water? And we don't have to feel guilty, guilty if we don't get through four chapters a day or keep up with some reading plan. If your reading plan is making you feel guilty, chuck it out the window. Just come back to some book that you're interested in. Cook while the pan is hot. Flip open to Isaiah. You you haven't read Isaiah before. Go at it a section at a time. Don't even make yourself have to read a whole chapter. But we have to be getting into the word of God because of all of its perfection and powerful effects. And this is the word of our Lord, our Lord Jesus even, who redeemed us, the eternal God who came in the flesh to show us the way of salvation, who redeemed us from slavery to sin. He's given us his own word to commune with us, to have a relationship with him and to do all of these things for us, reviving our souls, making us wise, rejoicing our hearts, enlightening our eyes. Sometimes we get sidetracked in pragmatism, in ministry, and we need to be reminded of these truths as well. We can easily get thinking that in church ministries or in counseling or in evangelism or discipleship, that we need something more than what God has in his word. We need new methods. We need scientific theory or psychology We need this or that book written by this author. We get sidetracked. We need to remember Scripture's sufficiency for all these things. For evangelism, what what can make people wise for salvation? What can convert the soul? It's the Word of God. For our counseling, what can make people glad of heart when they're depressed or they're, they're anxious? What can brighten their day? It's the word of God. This is a sure and faithful and perfect guide. It converts, restores, it makes wise, it enlightens, it gives joy. All the spiritual ills we encounter are remedied by the perfect, sure, pure, right word of the Lord. Look at what it is as described here. Is there any other resource better than this. No, this is God himself speaking to us, giving us what we need. Sometimes we 
look for so many other helps when we're in times of trouble. But the Bible ought to be our first recourse. It's a strong tower to run into and find safety when we're being troubled in life, when we meet with physical suffering or tragic losses or upsetting attacks or confusing situations or big decisions. Often we quickly run to a trusted friend or to mom and dad or to a blog or to a book or to a doctor or even to some sin to soothe our pain. Well, those things mostly are not bad, but do we think to go back to the scriptures first? See, they can give you more wisdom than the wisest counselors. They can give you comfort through a hard path. They can be your pleasure to meditate on even while things are troubling your mind. The scriptures need to become not some last resource we turn to when we've tried all the other options, but rather our go-to guide in all things. Remember again, this is the word of Yahweh, the sovereign yet personal God. Over and over, this is repeated. Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. This is our God who says, I am the Lord your God, our, our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who says, I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in it, ultimately, he shows us the way of the gospel. All of these powerful effects can be said of the gospel as well, because it is the word of God. The gospel instructs us with regard to our sin. It reveals our sins to us and tells us we need a savior. It shows us the way of salvation so that we might be converted, revived, restored to a right relationship with God. The gospel testifies faithfully to what God has done in sending his only begotten son to this earth to be born in our likeness, tempted as we are yet without sin, dying as the spotless lamb upon the cross to bring many sons to glory, rising from the grave to give us hope of eternal life. And through this testimony, he makes us wise unto salvation. We come willingly to receive the word of the cross, which is folly to the world, but to us who are saved, the wisdom and power of God. <clears throat> the gospel prescribes for us the way to come to Christ. It gives us a protocol. It says, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It tells us how to mourn for our sins and leave them at the cross. And it shows us how to cling to Christ in faith, calling upon his name so that we might be saved. And when we find him there, and we experience the forgiveness of our sins, fellowship with the eternal God, the, the joy of freely worshiping him. This is a joy that can be experienced nowhere else. He gladdens our heart by the gospel. And in the gospel, we see the light of God's glory that shines in our hearts. It enlightens our spiritual eyes and brings new life. And God commands us, then to follow Christ, which is the path of real education and enlightenment. So his command then cheers us and gives light to our path. Friends, never waver from the word of God. Cling to the gospel and to these scriptures, which are so perfect in character 
and so powerful in our lives. No wonder when the word of God was unleashed into the world 505 years ago, into the world of dark Romanism and superstition, where people were held in bondage to the fear of death, held captive to this system of human religion, which had the appearance of wisdom, but could do nothing to stop the indulgence of the flesh. No wonder when the gospel and the word of God was unleashed, it, it unleashed a light upon Europe. And a motto that came out of the Reformation was post tenebris lux, after darkness, light. May God again bring such light to our souls, to our church, to our city, to the world. The light of his holy and perfect word. Let's pray. Oh God, we magnify your name and we exalt you together. We recognize that forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Lord, it's a perfect word. It's sure, it's pure, it's right. We thank you for it, Lord, that even we can have it in our own language, that the reformers, even Wycliffe, put it into the English, into the language of the, the common people. Lord, that we would have your word and we would have its light, that we can have joy in our souls, a reviving. And Lord, we pray for this again today, that you would revive us by your word. And you would revive our city as the word goes out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.